Hello. Hello. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. We're back to a ceremony without a ceremony. This one, oh, we're, we're doing 1964. I don't know if I said that. <laughs> the 18th Annual Tony Awards. Um, and this one did have a television broadcast. It, was, it took place on May 24th, 1964 in the New York Hilton. Um, and it was broadcast on local television, Channel 9, WWOR-TV in New York City. But Again, it seems like it was probably in line with those earlier ceremonies where there were no performances. Yeah, it seemed, based on the coverage that I read, it seemed like in and out, one-hour ceremony type of thing. I wonder if, does that mean that 1967 not only was the first televised one, it was the first one where they had performances at all? Because this is kind of getting up there to that year. Well, it makes me think so. I The reason I think so is because there are so many clips. You know, even like, you know, at some point, um, Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur did maim like, you know, years after. Yeah, yeah. The And like the 1975 one we covered, like a lot of the ones in the 70s and onward were like sort of retroactively trying to televise a lot of those performances. It seems like it would be a lot of work. For no payoff. For no payoff. Yeah, and I guess it's like, what's the point of doing it if no one is going to see it except for the people in the room? Although mm-hmm. I guess that's the point of a Broadway show. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> So it was hosted by Steve Lawrence and Robert Preston. So Robert Preston hosting constantly. Yeah, because three years later he hosts when he Yeah, yeah. And then he, yeah, he was continuing to host up through the 80s. And some of the presenters included George Abbott, um, Lauren Bacall, Anne Bancroft, Barbara Cook, Robert Goulet, Sammy Davis Jr., Rip Torn, and Gwen Verdon, among many others. The musicals that were nominated for Best Musical that year were Hello, Dolly, which truly dominated with 11 nominations and 10 wins, which was a record that was not passed until the producers. Funny Girl, which had eight nominations and zero wins. High Spirits, which had eight nominations and zero wins. And She Loves Me, which had five nominations and one win. And I feel like these wins really, you know, in this kind of era where uh, a lot of the design awards between plays and musicals aren't separated, like Hello Dolly just swept. Everyone was just rushing to pile on Tony's to Hello Dolly. But what I thought was interesting is that it only won one of the acting awards and that was She Loves Me's She Loves Me's only award was for Mm -hmm. Supporting Actor. And then the other two Best Actor in a Musical awards were for musicals that did not get nominated or were basically overlooked, Mm -hmm. which were Foxy and The Girl Who Came to Supper, (laughs) (laughs) which you don't hear too much about. We might as well just get into Hello, Dolly, because we got a lot to say. Hello, Dolly ran at the St. James Theater. So it ran from January 16th, 1964 to... December 27th, 1970, which is a total of 2,844 performances, which was the record for the longest run for a musical. But it was passed pretty quickly by Fiddler on the Roof, which opened the year after. And Fiddler ended up beating not only the longest running musical record, but the longest running Broadway show total. So it's kind of funny that like Hello Dolly had this title and it was just like almost immediately snatched away. Mm-hmm. It was produced by David Merrick, book by Michael Stewart, music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, and it was directed and choreographed by Gower Champion. And the source material was The Matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. Although it has a source stretching back even farther than that, but... Yeah, and that's something I didn't realize. No, it's very interesting how this story came to be. But the synopsis is, 
In 1890s New York City, the bold and enchanting widow Dolly Levi is a socialite turned matchmaker. Her latest clients seeking assistance are the cantankerous half-a-millionaire Horace Vandergelder and a young artist named Ambrose, who is in love with Horace's niece, Ermengarde. Dolly's scheming soon involves Horace's employees as well as a New York hat maker as she tries to cover up her own secret romantic designs. The source for this actually goes back to 1835, and it was an English play by John Oxenford called A Day Well Spent, which was adapted by Johannes Nestroy for the Austrian farce He'll Have Himself a Good Time, and then Thornton Wilder turned it into a play in 1938 called The Merchant of Yonkers, which was a big flop, and then it was revised into The Matchmaker. That was in the 50s. Yeah. Um, uh, starring Ruth Gordon, which was a big hit. Yeah, I think that like one of the things that really did strike me about Hello Dolly when I saw this most recent revival is how much Thornton Wilder does shine through in the book of the show. Yeah, and here here are some of the lines that are taken, or ideas that are taken directly from that play. I'm a woman who arranges things, put on your Sunday clothes, ribbons down my back, and Dolly is a damn exasperating woman. And I didn't realize that for a long time the original title was going to be Dolly. Well, th- th- it's sort of been styled differently in every book, but some mm-hmm. have said it's like, Dolly, exclamation point, a damned exasperating woman. Mm-hmm. No matter what, it's good that they changed it to Hello, Dolly. Yes. It's funny because like as they were kind of crafting it and building it, like it became clear that Dolly was the main character of the show. And um, in Carol Channing's biography, she even talks about um, having a conversation with Thornton Wilder where he was like, oh, I should have just like made it about Dolly the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) And what I thought was interesting was that David Merrick produced The Matchmaker, I believe. Mm -hmm. So And so it was his idea to turn it into a musical. And apparently Ruth Gordon really expected to be asked to reprise her role as Dolly. And she didn't even get an audition. So apparently she showed up to opening night in like sort of the black version of like Dolly's red dress that she wears and like elbow length gloves and sat front row center glaring and not applauding the entire time which I am obsessed with. Oh my god. Like what a savage. So this all came out of David Merrick who is like the infamous producer of this period. His biography is called The Abominable Showman (laughs) which I think just uh, says all you need to know about his reputation. Mm -hmm. The way that he liked to operate is he really only liked to work with people. Mostly he liked to work with people that he had already worked with and had hits with, but he would also only work with people who had already had hits. Like he was like, I don't want to discover people. They can have their hit and then I will work with them. So he really wanted to get the team from Carnival back together. But Bob Merrill was like, no, I don't want to do that because he had had a bad time working with Garrett Champion, the director. So Bob Merrill left and he ended up going and writing the lyrics to Funny Girl, but he does make another appearance later in this story at a very crucial moment. So he was able to hire Garrett Champion and Michael Stewart, who had written the book for Carnival. I think on the topic of him, it's kind of crazy because he had eight shows that opened on Broadway that season. So he was like approaching all these composers he had already worked with, and they were all like, either we're busy or like, we just don't want to do this. So somehow Jerry Herman kind of crossed his path and he had had a hit he had had like a hit review and also something else I didn't know is that the way that Jerry Herman kind of got started as a composer was that Jerry Herman's mother played bridge with Frank Lesser's one Mm -hmm. of Frank Lesser's friends and he was like come meet with my 15 year old son Um, and he like played him all his songs and Frank Lesser was like kid you got what it takes (laughs) that's like 
his kind of his like origin story but his mom died not long before dolly went into production and it's just really touching to like hear him be like the evening was perfect except for the fact that my mother wasn't there (laughs) poor jerry and i didn't really necessarily realize this but i had always kind of assumed that milk and honey which was kind of his first show was a flop but it seems like in the the steven citron Uh, Jerry Herman biography, it's kind of regarded as like a minor hit. And so when David Merrick, you know, met with Jerry Herman, he was like, Milk and Honey is way too ethnic. Like, you got (laughs) to prove to me that you can write Americana. So he like went away for a weekend and he came back with these four songs and they were dancing. I put my hand in, put on your Sunday clothes, all of which obviously are still in the show. And the fourth one was called I Still Love the Love That I Loved, which eventually became Ribbons Down My Back. Mm -hmm. So David Merrick was like, kid, you got the job. (laughs) I think I'm going to be doing my my mid-century producer voice a lot this episode. I hope we've both been working on our Carol Channing impressions. (laughs) David Merrick just seems so horrible. I know, he's such an asshole. I found this cute little quote from Fred Ebb about Jerry Herman's music, and he said, Jerry Herman shows embody American optimism. They're smart, they're accessible, they're melodic, they're lovable. You kind of want to reach out and hug whatever Jerry writes, which I thought was adorable. And also very true. Yeah. I think in getting to know more about Jerry Herman and also for the first time sort of looking at at um, his body of work, looking at his shows chronologically next to one another, no one does it quite like him. So talking more about the casting, they offered it to Ethel Merman initially, and she said no because, first of all, she was kind of getting older and she was sort of angling to retire a little bit. Mm -hmm. And she also was like, Ruth Gordon was so iconic in that role. Like, I don't want to follow that because everyone's just going to be comparing me to her, which is kind of um, interesting considering what happened to Carol Channing. So Ethel Merman, when she was approached about it, was like, I'm sick of being in the dressing room when everyone's going out to dinner. <laughs> like, it feels like a very embodied Dolly decision to be like, I'm sick of, like, not living my life. It's true. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Before the parade passes by. Mm-hmm. So both Garrett Champion and David Merrick did not want Carol Channing to do it. And Carol Channing thought that it was partly because when she did Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, she, um, Garrett Champion got passed over for Agnes DeMille to do the choreography, and she always felt that he kind of blamed her for that. And David Merrick said to Carol Channing, I don't want that silly grin with all those teeth that go back to your ears. Oh my god, I was just looking for that passage. (laughs) It's so mean. I know. But she was, like, really, really gunning for the role, and she ended up winning it by um she met with both of them like after a performance of whatever she was in and they ended up talking until like five in the morning and they were like you understand this character you got it (laughs) and um yeah she was like jerry herman was also like i don't know about this channing lady (laughs) and then yeah she totally just like charmed his pants off like a week after meeting he was like i knew forever that she would be one of my best friends So here's a quote. This is from Gower Champion's biography just about Carol Channing's performance style. Beneath Channing's persuasive characterization was something the director had first recognized in Lendonier, an uncommon form of spontaneity, which, if properly managed, could help set the tone of the production. Gordon Connell, who played the judge, describes the effect. Carol is someone who works off a strange combination of preparation and the present moment. She is truly a visitor from another planet whose feet are very cannily rooted in the here and now. It's true her performance is calculated, certainly. She's learned it, she's practiced it, she does it so much that she's never at a loss. She's never really caught totally unaware, but that sense of spontaneity, like of danger, 
She has a danger in her, in her presence and her approach to things that makes us ask, what is she going to do next? So ultimately, Gower was very shrewd in casting her. And when they were filling out the supporting cast, he did something really interesting where, like, he cast all of the roles with these, like, comedic sort of character actors, including the roles that you would think, like uh, Cornelius and Irene, who you would think would be sort of your straight man Mm -hmm. romantic leads. He cast Charles Nelson Reilly. And I didn't realize that Eileen Brennan was the original Irene, who, you know, I think most people our age probably know her from Clue and from Private Benjamin, but Mm -hmm. she's, you know, like, she's a real character actress, comedian, and not sort of the ingenue you would think they would go for that. And that was part of Gower Champion's vision of the whole thing is very much like like a cartoon where everyone is kind of off kilter and, like, there is no straight man. Like, Mm -hmm. everything is very wacky. Yeah, and I think that that is a good point. And something that I don't think I necessarily realized about the show is, like, how fun and whimsical, and I think cartoonish is, like, the right word for it, And I think in talking about what he didn't like about the film adaptation, I think Jerry Herman, the example he gave is in the opening scene, um, Dolly's kind of introduced by coming out on like a horse-drawn trolley car, kind of. And, you know, the horse is two sexy women like wearing a horse costume (laughs) and you get to see their sexy legs instead of like horse legs. And Jerry Herman was like, that's it. Like, that's the essence of Dolly. It's not like having an actual horse. It's like the like sexy legs in like a horse costume (laughs) yeah totally another funny thing about carol is that she had to be trained specially to stand to have the posture of like an 1890s lady because she has this kind of like slouched flapper posture with like her pelvis forward so she had to work with you know the dance captain and like do all of these core exercises so she would like stand in the correct way oh that's so interesting yeah yeah, I obviously, you know, knew that she had other hits before this um, and knew that she was already, like, somewhat established, but I didn't know that her persona that she really embodied before Dolly was, like, a flapper, which obviously makes sense, um, yeah. because even around this time, she's in the Thoroughly Modern Millie movie. So apparently the show was kind of, like, a big mess throughout the preview and out-of-town period, and that was because... Gower Champion spent two out of the five weeks just rehearsing the Hello Dolly and Waiters scene. Mm-hmm. So that scene was like on point and everything else is kind of like, oh, what? But something I also thought was kind of funny was that like when they thought that Gower Champion wasn't going to be able to direct and they approached Hal Prince and he was like, I'll do it, but we got to cut the song Hello Dolly. And I was like, what? And he was like, this is for a scene where a woman who doesn't go out decides to visit a restaurant, <laughs> which is like... It's so funny that Hal Prince, for someone who has made a career in musicals, has such little whimsy about him. Yeah. And is, like, reading his biography, he is so kind of matter-of-fact in a way that you don't expect for someone who works in musicals. And, like, reinvented the American musical. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, it doesn't surprise me that he didn't get that song. Yeah, well, it is kind of, like, an interesting thing because I think that, you know, when you're trying to, like, chart out the plot of the show like you know this is like the rising action this is the climax it like doesn't really necessarily make a whole lot of sense no it makes no sense (laughs) but it makes emotional sense and that was something that really struck me when we saw it when we saw the revival it's like the audience really responds to having like if you're going to a show especially that is all about the star like the audience really responds to having a number that is just like celebrating the star where it's like hey we're happy to have you we're (laughs) glad you're on stage we're glad you're here. Like, everyone is happy that this is happening. Mm-hmm. I have, this is from, I guess it's just called Showstoppers. 
The song starts slowly, quietly, inviting us in, just as Dolly is inviting us in to dine with her. Much of the song zing is how carefully and cannily Herman builds the glee to bursting. When the number first arrived on the scene, that is, before it was the famous showstopper we now await, there was no way to know you would be enthralled by the pulsating, life-enhancing spirit that the tune unleashes on stage that, and that overwhelms us as we watch Dolly welcomed back, a surefire theatrical payoff. You've been down, the song says, you've been crushed by life, but now you're back on your feet, and by God, you're ready to take on the world. It's a sentiment that reverberates down through the annals of musical theater, from I Ain't Down Yet in the Unsinkable Molly Brown and I Hope I Get It in a Chorus Line to Define Gravity and Wicked. Jerry Herman says, I would say Hello Dolly is the most perfectly staged production number I've ever had in a show. It's gorgeously staged by Gower Champion. It does everything it's supposed to do, and it constantly builds, another reason it gets the audience so excited. It starts very quietly, very charmingly, and it builds and builds, and I help the build by constantly changing keys, going to a new plateau, until it makes every person in the audience go, wow! Channing was the song's wow girl, its efficient delivery system, her first big show after breaking through 15 years before in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Miss Channing's performance is impeccable, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen, Coos Herman. Her joy and all her skills as an artist are on that stage. It's a very accessible song that's easy to take to your heart, but putting all of that together still does not make a showstopper. Herman explains that other crucial elements must be mixed in to create the total explosive result. The costumes and sets are very important in the Hello Dolly number. The poster colors, the sense of where we are in time, and of glamour and gaslights and red velvet curtains. Herman also acknowledges the importance of the show's signature spiral staircase. It would not work without a staircase. Strutting down the staircase is a definitive theatrical look that I love. It makes stars regal. It makes them Zigfield girls. There's something ladylike about it. Carol just bathed in the joy of taking those steps. But even all that added together would not make a showstopper. If there weren't a woman's choice to stop her grieving period, which has been going on for decades, and making the decision to put that dress back on and to come down the stairs as she did in the old days with Ephraim, there's something so heartrending about it that most people, seeing or remembering the number, don't know why they were moved by that. But that's the secret behind the whole thing. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> I think that really captures it. <laughs> And I think that, like, something that I didn't necessarily realize until I actually saw it was, like, how much dancing is... Like, the waiter's gallop leading into Hello, Dolly is some of the most, like, amazing theater that I've ever seen in my life. It really is. And that was the reason that Gower Champion started with that song. And he was, like, putting this sequence together is going to help me figure out how to do the whole rest of the show. And, like, it started out as this kind of intimate number, and then it kept growing and growing. And he was like, oh, this isn't, like, an intimate show at all. It's kind of like a big blood-all-the-stops kind of zany, crazy spectacle, which was totally correct. I think also, like, it's rare. Even the other, like, bigger production numbers in this show don't really have the same weight as this. Like, thinking of, like, put on your Sunday clothes, like, I think I was... Surprised by how, like, little dancing and movement there is in it. So, 
when they were out of town in Detroit, the reviews were pretty negative, and some people were saying that the show wasn't even going to make it to New York. And at this point, David Merrick had not really been involved because, as Tim mentioned, he had been producing eight other shows or (laughs) seven other shows. So he was kind of running around and he got there in Detroit and he was just irate and throwing tantrums and making everybody cry. And so he flew in Bob Merrill, who was in the middle of working on Funny Girl. And Bob Merrill was like, "Uh, I don't really want to come in. Like, that seems really disrespectful. And David Merrick was like, don't worry, Jerry. Like, Jerry knows you're coming. And Bob, like, comes and he sees Jerry in the hotel lobby. And Jerry just looks like he's seen a ghost. And Bob Merrill's like, oh, fuck. And so he looked at the show. And he was like, really the only big issues are you have to fix how act one ends and how act two begins. Act one at this point was ending with Penny in My Pocket, which was a song for Horace Vandegelder. And it was him describing how he got rich. And behind him, they're at like a bankruptcy auction. And behind him, Dolly is like bidding on all of these things. And slowly this like huge mountain of stuff starts building up behind him. And then he turns around and gets like buried in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that number cost $100,000. And then they cut it. Oh my God. Because of all the problems. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, Bob Merrill like had parades on the brain because Funny Girl Act One ends with Don't Rain on My Parade. And he was mm-hmm. like, What about a parade? <laughs> and so, Act Two, the story varies whether he wrote them or he and Jerry collaborated on Elegance and the Motherhood March. And Elegance is the new Act Two opener. So, he helped with those and he left. And supposedly, He's made over a million dollars just from having those songs in Hello, Dolly. That's so crazy. (laughs) So they were like, we got to cut Penny in my pocket. Like, we need to have a number for Dolly there. Mm -hmm. And David Merrick brought in Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. He brought in another composing team. He really did not have a lot of faith in Jerry Herman. And he came in and they wrote a song called Before the Parade Passes By. But everyone was like, that's not right. So Jerry Herman took that title and he like banged that song out overnight in his hotel room and like called them in at three in the morning and they were like, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. And he kind of points that out as like the point in the production where he finally like felt a little bit at ease about it. Yeah. Um, and also like he was like really concerned because I think that even in the Jerry Herman biography, he like points out that a lot of other Broadway texts have mischaracterized like what was going on. Apparently Jerry Herman was like so upset about it that he asked uh, Charles Strauss to write a note being like, (laughs) the note says, to whom it may concern, Jerry Herman, and Herman is underlined, wrote the music and lyrics for Before the Parade Passes By. (laughs) I believe that he wrote it. I think there's just always going to be confusion because they came up with the title and wrote a separate song with that title. That seems like maybe like the single choice that saved the show because it really sets up Dolly's emotional through line that's like carried through with the song Hello Dolly, where it's like before the parade passes by is her being like, I'm going to focus on me now. And so restaging that number and like adding all the parade elements cost another $40,000 and they didn't have it all complete until the very last night of previews in Washington. Um, And they were doing so much rewriting of everything that they literally had this assistant stage manager hiding in a barrel on stage during the store scenes and like feeding them lines. Oh my God, (laughs) that is insane. (laughs) I have another very horny passage from The Secret Life of the American Musical about put on your Sunday clothes. The number that takes them there starts modestly enough, though the fact that it's a kind of banjo-driven stretch should tip us off that this piece of music might have room to expand. The lyric is simple and concise. It describes the ambition of everyone involved to live before it's too late. And in this sense, it is a kind of I want song. 
It's rather a small song if you just play through it once, extolling the virtues of dressing up, going out, and seeking romance and glamour in the big city. But the creators of Dolly, led by the director-choreographer Gower Champion, had big plans. The number is a kind of rite of passage, and the noise is not simply oral, but also visual. We go from the modest Yonkers train station to the train and get the tour of the lower Hudson Valley in an ever-elaborating display of costumes and sets. A moving train, a passing cityscape, as Dolly and her little brood of adventurers set out on a hunt for the adventures that might bring them lifelong happiness. The provincial becomes urban. The drudgery of everyday living is suddenly injected with infinite promise and beauty. Dreer turns to joy right in front of our eyes. What makes these five minutes or so of theater so exhilarating? It's not just the song or just the costume changes or the escalating excitement of the moving scenery or just the increasing noise made by the increasingly large number of singers. It's not even simply that the whole Megillah is massively impressive in its totality. It's all of that, plus in a leading role what Jerome Robbins called the rate of release of ideas. Champion understood that as soon as the audience has understood a visual idea and taken pleasure from it, another idea has to be presented. As soon as the sound of a trio has been enjoyed, the quartet has to enter, then the octet, then the entire company. Timing is everything. If an idea overstays its welcome, the audience gets bored. If a new idea intrudes before the last one has been fully digested, the audience will be denied the proper introduction of a new pleasure and become confused or frustrated. But in Put On Your Sunday Clothes, the rate of release is perfect, resulting in a catapulting delight. Like a great lover, the number has an instinct for escalating the audience's pleasure at the right moment. In the original production of Dolly, that audience, having little or no idea of how many tricks Champion and company had up their sleeves, was left breathless. The number set off the joy buzzer and the crowd erupted. At its conclusion, Dolly's merry band of explorers had escaped the provinces and arrived in the most beautiful place in the world. Life teemed with limitless possibilities. This, the audience told itself, is why there are musicals. I guess going back to the Bob Merrill lyrics, I thought that this was sort of an interesting note about it. The Jerry Herman biography, here's a passage. The truth is, Herman maintains, Bob Merrill did not want to interfere with my work. He started off by saying, I really don't like being in this position because I love the stuff you've done. If you believe we need a song to open the second act, we'll just write one together. I have an idea and I'm going to give you a little bit of it. And if you like it, you write the rest of it. And he wrote, Hey New York, it's really us, Barnaby and Cornelius. He stretched it out to Cornelius instead of Cornelius. Then he wrote, All the guests of Mr. Hackle are feeling great and look spectacular. (laughs) Yes, New York, it's really us, Barnaby and Cornelius. All the guests of Mr. Hackle and look spectacular. And Jerry Herman says, I would never write that. 
I would never syllabize a name to get a rhyme or twist a word, hackalar and spetacular, to make it fit, especially since Cornelius doesn't talk that way in any other part of the musical. My rhymes have to be perfect, and my people always sing in the language that fits their character. It's a small point, but important to me. Whatever. Yeah. I always thought that lyric was very cute. I know, I love that lyric. I love elegance. Me too. So Bob Merrill was right. He mm-hmm. knew he knew what they needed. So this is a little bit about Gower Champion's technique in rehearsal and like the 60s were all about kind of the rise of the director choreographer and this is sort of the benefit of having one person wearing both of those hats instead of, you know, separate people doing both. And one thing I will say before you read this is that Gower Champion is extremely handsome. He is very handsome. So... Uh, on the afternoon of Sunday, October 6th, at the Mark Hellinger Theater, the full cast assembled for the first rehearsal. Champion began by explaining how he intended to use dance as a means of determining the magnitude and characterization of the musical. According to Channing, he leveled with the company and said, Now look, I find my characters and my level of the show through dance. If I were Josh Logan, we'd all be on the script and the dialogue, and in two weeks we'd drop our scripts, we'd know it, and we'd start. Then we would go on to the music. But I'm not Josh Logan. I am who I am. I felt the same way he did. If you can find how a character sings and dances rather than walks and talks, you've got the soul of the character. You've got her out of the material world and into the spiritual. That's what Gower knew. Therefore, he said, I will have to spend the first two weeks on the Hello Dolly number. He never touched the dialogue. And he also said, The choreographer, he stated, requires that his dancers be expressive in dance terms while the director, in working with actors, tries to elicit the inner feelings of a character through both speech and gesture. The middle ground, not the dividing line, between choreography and direction is what I call staging. This is what links dancing and acting, and I think that the choreographer, in the role of the director, can bring something special to the business of staging. Specifically, musical staging encompasses everything from subdued moments of solitary reflection to the thrill of an entire company belting a song full tilt. It is where the choreographer becomes stage director, shaping intimate and spectacular moments within the framework of a song's music and lyrics. Unlike choreography, which relies solely on music and story, Musical staging gives priority to the words being sung. So I thought that was an interesting way of articulating that. Yeah, and I think that the term musical staging, we have seen like, you know, someone who's not a choreographer or the director kind of get the credit as like the musical stager. Yeah. Um, And even thinking of like how someone like George Wolfe works, I think that like, I don't think that the first word that I would think of is like choreographed, but like musical staging is really like when I think about some of the number, you know, thinking of something like Jelly's Last Jam, or like even Carolina Change, it's like very much, you know, is musically staged. Yeah, and like in a medium like a musical where everything, you know, ideally should be totally seamlessly integrated, like you really have to have a director who understands. I mean, maybe that's like a no-duh, but you have to have a director that understands the musical elements of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also talk about at some point in the book where he was like sort of talking to the orchestrator and being like, you know, at this point I have Carol doing like this with her hands. Like I want the oboe to be doing this. Like it seems like he was really sort of involved in every aspect of it the way that not a lot of directors are. And I also think that how Dolly is used throughout is like really true to her character. Um, And I think that when they were, you know, looking at even the people who kind of came before Carol Channing as possible Dolly's, you know, Ethel Merman and I think Nanette. Fabre. Fabre. None of them are like, you know, they're not Gwen Verdon's. No. And I think that they really like tailored the role to like who Dolly is and also like who these performers are. Yeah, uh, Ethan Morden calls it a big lady show, which is like a, you know, popping up through the 60s and which we also have in Funny Girl. But something I didn't realize until I was like reading the details 
of how some of these sequences were staged is just how much this most recent Jerry's Axe revival borrowed from the original staging. And, like, mm-hmm. I guess it's, like, you know, if you've already figured out the best way to stage these things, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. But it was, like, things like, you know, having Dolly revealed when she's riding on the stage car and, like, the newspapers come down and, like, call on Dolly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it takes a woman, like, all of the male ensemble kind of, like, popping up from behind the ladders and stuff. And also even um, Dolly coming on for the curtain call in a white dress that she had not worn previously in the show. Mm-hmm. That was because the costume designer designed this like beautiful white costume for carol channing to wear in like a wedding sequence at the end and garrett champion was like no that's too fancy like she's not rich yet but carol channing loved it so much that she just like came out in it during the (laughs) curtain calls in washington and everyone was like that's perfect that's what you gotta do and i think though based on like what i know of his work and especially the hello dolly revival and even you know what video i've seen of kiss me kate i feel like warren carlisle does like a good job of not putting his hand too much putting his hand in here yeah i think he does like a very he's very tasteful and respectful and like is kind of the person to call to get the dust off of iconic choreography and it was like knowing that it feels very gratifying to see like how all of that stuff still works really well today even though I think in some ways people see Hello Dolly as very dated. I mean, I think that revival was really successful in making it feel fresh, but also making it feel like it was in a lot of ways what you would have seen if you saw it in 1964. Mm -hmm. Like it really split the difference in a nice way. Yeah. And like, yeah, I think that, you know, thinking of other, you know, thinking about like even us talking about the damn Yankees revival where it was like, it seemed like they really tried to like punch it up for the 90s. I think if something's, you know, so classic, it just doesn't really need it. If it ain't broke. So as you may have been able to guess by the millions of Tonys, it was a big stinking hit. Walter Kerr said, Don't bother holding on to your hats because you won't be needing them. You'd only be throwing them in the air anyway. Hello Dolly is a musical comedy dream with Carol Channing, the girl of it. Almost literally it's a dream, a drunken carnival, a happy nightmare, a wayward circus in which the mistress of ceremonies opens wide her biggest millstone eyes, spreads her white-gloved arms in ecstatic abandon, trots out on a circular runway that surrounds the orchestra, and proceeds to dance rings around the conductor. With hair like orange seafoam, a contralto like horses neighing, and a confidential swagger that promises to babysit for the entire house, she fulfills for you a promise you made yourself as a boy. To see someday a musical comedy performer with all the blousy glamour of the girls on the sheet music of 1916. Miss Channing has gone back for another look at that advertisement labeled His Master's Voice, and she has swallowed the records, the Victrola, and quite possibly the dog. (laughs) Everyone just uh, freaking lost it. I'm just like kind of speechless. It feels hard for me to like kind of like conceptualize Hamilton fever but like <laughs> substituting like Hello Dolly yeah there well Mike Nichols had a funny one-liner about it where someone asked how he felt about Hello Dolly or like how he liked it and he said it's very good but it's no Hello Dolly <laughs> and I think also part of it was that you know um, the Kennedy assassination occurred the fall before it opened um, in January And I think that was very much like, you know, as a country, everyone was like, we need something to distract us. And the cast album was one of, I think, maybe the last one to chart, to kind of heavily chart in a in an era where, you know, it was starting to move towards rock and roll. And like, you know, obviously Louis Armstrong's cover of Hello, Dolly or revived his career also and went to number one. Mm-hmm. And he appeared in the movie with Barbara. I feel the room. <laughs> and the band. <laughs> one of our favorite <laughs> 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 So it was my favorite. 
show some snap fellas find her an empty love you know i haven't been able to back check this but like apparently he like on several occasions was at the show and like came up on stage to oh, interesting. sing Hello Dolly. But I, you know, I read that someplace online and haven't been able to like confirm that in any legitimate source. So, so in replacing Carol Channing, Carol Channing, by the way, went on to play Dolly regularly for the rest of her life and never missed a performance. I think mm-hmm. she really has like a legendary appearance record. And I think, you know, her totals like ended up being like she had done the role like almost over 7,000 times. Jesus. Um, yeah, she's really like, she was really one of the last of that type of performer. So actually there were several things that I didn't realize originated with this show. Number one was the curtain call standing ovation and like having it be sort of structured around the star coming out. Believe it or not, the musicals with Mary Martin, Eddie Cantor, Ethel Merman, and Burt Lair never got standing ovations. American showbiz was then in its glory, and even the biggest talents were taken for granted, for there was so much talent around. Look at the scores from the 1950s. Even My Fair Lady, the music for the curtain call lasts less than a minute. There's no time for an ovation. No need. It was the 1960s, and shows such as Hello, Dolly! and Mame that created the audience participation finale. That was news to me. Yeah, I always, you know, and I think that it even feels like such a trope, and I even associate it with, like, opera of, yeah. like, at the end, like, standing up and being like, brava, brava. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it also, in replacement, was really the first, like, stunt casting that was done in a musical where they had Ginger Rogers, Betty Davis almost came in, Ethel Merman did ultimately come in, and with Ginger Rogers... I found the source of another thing, which is when you go see a show now, the law is that if there's an understudy, mm-hmm. you have to do two out of three things. You have to have it posted outside, you have to make an announcement, or you have to have a slip in the playbill. This is from David Merrick's uh, biography. Ginger Rogers missed a lot of performances. Merrick and Schlissel devised a way to protect less sophisticated audience members from knowing that they were not seeing the star. In those days, actors' equity required that if a performer was going to be out of a performance, the producer could either post a notice in the lobby or make an announcement before the performance began. American Schlissel decided it would be more advantageous to make the announcement before the performance. The announcer would welcome the audience to the show and state that the role of Mrs. Levi, omitting the first name, which might have tipped them off that the part in question was the title role, would tonight be performed by B.B. Osterwald. As the announcer began Osterwald's second name, the conductor gave the downbeat. Also, at that precise moment, the box office window slammed shut. This minimized the need to refund money to disgruntled patrons. This came to be known as the Ginger Rogers cue. Audiences had no reason to complain about the substitution. Osterwald was a splendid performer. Moreover, it had been so many years since anyone had seen Rogers, even in films, that many did not know the difference. It was Osterwald who complained to Equity about what was happening. Equity ruled that henceforth, if a performer was absent, the audience had to be notified both in the lobby and from the stage. So, I didn't know that 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 came from Hello, Dolly! A disgruntled understudy. In the uh, musical Nonsense, there is a line, because I think that in Nonsense, one of the nuns is like upset about being an understudy. (laughs) (laughs) An understudy part is not my own. Now look, I've been reading up on this understudy stuff. Believe me, it's not encouraging. Read this. Who here know that Dolly Levi's also B.B. Oscarwald? Carol Channing wasn't sick, so B.B. wasn't called. So I guess, uh, yeah, uh, B.B. Osterwald gets names checked in Nonsense the wow. Musical. Um, because I guess she was actually Carol's understudy, but since Carol never... <laughs> 
missed a performance, you know, which is also funny that she like never got sick because she's a Christian scientist and their whole thing <laughs> is like, we don't visit doctors. Wow. I mean, I think it must just be good genetics because she lived forever. But also, I guess going off of the earlier point that there wasn't like heavy dancing for Dolly or like they kind of tailored it to the character of Dolly but for when Ginger Rogers did come in they uh they gave her her more dancing that's good and also like when Betty Grable came in they like had her like show her legs (laughs) (laughs) this is actually really sweet so like Betty Grable was one of like Jerry Herman's childhood icons and on her days off Grable would often come over to Jerry Herman's house on Fire Island in his memoir he wrote lovingly of her It was such a thrill for this little Jewish boy from Jersey City because when I was seven or eight years old, I was in love with Betty Grable. She was the musical comedy star of all those Coney Island and Wabash Avenue movies my mother used to let me go to on Saturday afternoons. I would send away to the movie studios for autographed photographs, and I used to send her fan letters. And here was Betty Grable, standing in my kitchen, and a schmada doing the dishes and lounging around my pool with her hair dripping wet. I know. Something I find interesting about Hello Dolly in general is that, like, you kind of think of it as being very apolitical, but it actually is both in, like, its context in sort of American culture and in the text itself, it is very political. Mm -hmm. And I think that it sort of reminded me of, like, what got me interested in Broadway history in the first place, where it's like, you know, now... Broadway is such like a marginal part of American culture and American life. You know, throughout the 20th century, it's so intertwined with our history and politics and culture wars. And I feel like Hello, Dolly! has roots growing throughout so many different areas of that. Like, you know, Lyndon Johnson using Hello, Lyndon! as part of his campaign and like trying to sue Barry, is it Barry Goldwater that yeah. he ran for doing Hello, Barry? And also Mary Martin was going to take the show to Russia to be like, you know, sort of a, a symbol of American culture but it was literally literally on their way over the Russians were like we don't like what's happening in Vietnam because you know the U.S. was starting to send troops over there so you're canceled like literally when they were like on a layover in Japan and David Merrick was like well we're just gonna go to Vietnam and like play there and tour Asia and there's like all of this video of Mary Martin touring Asia (laughs) in Hello Dolly in the 60s which is wild yeah. Um, and a lot of people see it as the last quote unquote innocent, like optimistic American musical before, you know, all the trauma of Vietnam and the 60s and all of everything that was happening there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we'll get into sort of the Pearl Bailey stuff, but that ended up being a whole other thing. <laughs> but what was interesting to me, like seeing it for the first time, is that like it has really liberal politics. Like Dolly is basically a socialist. I know. She's like redistributing yeah, her wealth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's literally her whole goal as a character and also and maybe this is just like my reading into it but I feel like Penny in My Pocket is kind of like a subversion of the bootstraps narrative where like it's him trying to be like well I worked myself up to the way I am but like in reality he just like married his boss's daughter and then she died and he inherited her wealth Mm -hmm. so it's like even working hard like it's not enough you need sort of to be in the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. I thought that was very surprising it feels very radical it seems like a capitalism critique like the whole thing yeah well and even like the treatment of Cornelius and Barnaby I think that there is like this element of farce where such a big part of it is like kind of like the shaking up of all these like social structures yeah and it's like funny because I wonder if it got the same I'm sure it got the same laugh it did you know when they're like well we make like two cents a day <laughs> and everyone's like oh ho, ho. in Carol Channing's uh, biography she talks about LBJ and Lady Bird. The song Hello Dolly was also the perfect campaign theme song. Barry Goldwater thought so too. 
so he used it and somehow forgot to ask Jerry Herman for permission. Mr. Merrick was a Democrat. Jerry was, and everyone in the show that I talked to was. Jerry was so is so unabrasive, he can hardly say no to anyone. So Mr. Merrick charged in and got the song back for us. That's how come I got to sing Hello, Lyndon to open the Democratic presidential campaign and be televised in that huge arena at Atlantic City Convention Hall. Jerry wrote special lyrics for Hello, Lyndon, ending with, Be our guide, Lyndon. Ladybird at your side, Lyndon. <laughs> Promise you'll stay with us in 64. <laughs> also, this Carol Channing biography, like, literally just sounds like it was not edited at all. <laughs> like, it just sounds like a, a stream of consciousness. A stream of consciousness. That's there beautiful. have been, like, several times where I've been like, oh, like, did I read that right? Like, and I'm like, oh, it just does not make sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, also, it feels like we should mention, I don't really want to talk about it that much, um, but Jerry Herman did get sued by some, I think his name was Mac David, because he said that Hello Dolly sounds like a song he wrote called Sunflower. She's a sunflower, she's my sunflower, and I know we'll never part. She's a sunflower, she's my one flower, she's the flower of my heart. They do sound, the first few notes do sound similar. I think they ended up settling out of court. Yeah, because the movie, they were trying to settle the movie rights and everyone was really worried because like in Hollywood, as even it's still true today that like, the tides change about musicals so quickly that they were like really wanted to get like the paper signed Um, but they couldn't because he this thing was like kind of ramping up so jerry herman gave them two hundred thousand dollars which adjusted for inflation it's a pretty good payout that's a pretty good payout i guess also talking about money of the era it was like a big deal that the ticket prices was like raised to nine sixty, um, but I actually did the math and that does like calculate somewhere out to like you know seventy five dollars. That's a little bargain. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Gower Champion book has a good passage about sort of like the the end of innocence and the political tensions of that era. Yet beyond its popular and artistic success, Hello, Dolly! heralded the finale of an era as the last Titanic hit in a class of musicals launched over 60 years before by George M. Cohan that celebrated the innocence and boundless optimism of the American spirit. The crowning achievement of that period had been the integrated musical, in which all the elements of production, performers, music, lyrics, book, choreography, orchestration, scenery, costumes, and technical design, converged to realize a single creative vision. Rodgers and Hammerstein had created the first with Oklahoma, and now Gower was clearly one of its undisputed masters. But in the wake of the president's assassination, as the country plummeted deeper and deeper into the political and social turmoil of the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy assassinations, and numerous counterculture factions, the common cultural understanding of American society shattered, and and with it the populist ritual that the musical had been for many since the end of the Second World War. As a result, the musical changed as abruptly and drastically as the historical events that were changing America. Hello, Dolly, whose Broadway run spanned this period, now had to share the street with more cynical and hard-edged shows like Harold Prince's Cabaret and Company that reflected the disillusionment and alienation felt by many. In a polarized society where the efficacy of the American dream was questioned and found deficient, the integrated musical could no longer serve as a ritual for that dream. Without a common reference point, the Broadway musical tried to reinvent itself in an effort to attract new audiences. Rock musicals like Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar appealed to the young, while the Me Nobody Knows and Pearly spoke to racial minorities. 
Throughout the 1970s, Gower, whose work had largely defined the musical in the previous decade, would try his hand at these new forms, as well as those more wry in tone, and fail. Only when he returned to his roots in 1980 with 42nd Street would he have a success as great as Dolly. At the show's final performance, as he drew cheers while making a brief dancing appearance, the celebrated director-choreographer had no idea that his brand of showmanship had already fallen prey to the musical struggle for identity in the midst of a country at war with itself. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was a pretty good summary, although as always, the sort of like asterisk with those kind of assessments is like, you know, that period was only sort of fun and optimistic if you were white and middle class or mm-hmm. higher, um, which I think is always kind of assumed Yeah, if you're reading a book about musical theater. Yeah. You know what else, though, too? I think that like The Secret Life of the American Musical in either the last chapter, or, like kind of like the postscript for the book, like I think he gives like a really interesting analysis of the changing tides. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to like summarize everything that he says, but yeah. I think that if you're interested in getting a good take on that, I think he has like a pretty good take about. Yes, you know, that book is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we haven't hyped it up enough. And I think the other kind of important thing to talk about about with Hello Dolly is, is that it did something kind of which ended up being kind of controversial which is that um, it, the, he had recast it a few times I think Betty Grable was in it but it was um, starting to fail at the box office and there had been an all-black company starring Pearl Bailey and Cab Calloway touring around. And David Merrick was like, we're just going to close the show and we're going to bring in the touring company and reopen it with this all-black cast, which ended up really like rejuvenating it, but also sort of created a surprising amount of controversy. I have this book called The Great White Way, Race in the Broadway Musical. David Merrick's idea to recast the immensely popular Hello, Dolly! with Pearl Bailey was both inspired and, from the get-go, controversial. From actors' equity to theater critics to Bailey herself, everyone had a perspective on the racial implications of this production to share. As one blurb in the Philadelphia Tribune reported just a week before the all-black dolly was scheduled to open on Broadway, Hollywood people are talking about the fact that producer David Merrick is having some non-headline headaches and meetings with militant civil rights advocates regarding his Pearl Bailey, Cab Calloway version of Hello, Dolly. It seems that some people, black and white, think the all-Negro show is the throwback to the Cotton Club-type shows of the 30s and has set the civil rights movement back 30 years. Was the production essentially a type of blackface? Was it reinforcing segregation? Did race even matter at all? The answers were all over the place. From the very beginning, there was skepticism. Ragney Lance related in Ebony magazine, when it was first announced that David Merrick was planning an all-Negro version of Hello, Dolly, many people questioned his motives. Most were the so-called white liberals who felt this would be a relapse to the all-Negro shows of an earlier, less enlightened era. Cynics contended it was just a gimmick to attract people who had already seen the show, and the Women's National Democratic Club voted down a proposal to engage the show for a benefit because the cast was segregated. So people did love Pearl Bailey. And, you know, since then Jennifer Lewis like played Dolly a couple in 2009. I think that it does create this interesting problem. Yeah, and I think people were also like questioning and I mean this is always sort of an annoying argument when people are talking about like historical accuracy in terms of casting actors of color in what are period pieces in mm-hmm. roles that like they would not have in reality and it's like you know a huge part of theater and especially musical theater is suspension of disbelief and it's like if you can imagine these people are singing and dancing in real life like you can imagine that a black woman like has this role in 1890s yonkers Mm -hmm. it's like funny too because i think that growing up two of my favorite performances in period revivals are lilius white in uh how How to succeed where you know like she just comes in and has like an amazing solo in brotherhood of man (laughs) so here's a little bit more about that from this same book Despite Bailey's repeated desire to quell any negative criticism about the show reinforcing segregation, she offered the most perceptive observation on the situation. 
I asked them why they didn't raise this question of all one race five years ago when Carol Channing created the role with an all-white cast. I tell them wherever I am, I am integrated. More than any critic, Bailey acknowledged the unquestioned normative white nature of the American musical and of Hello, Dolly! in particular. A major problem with the production, though, was not merely that the casting seemed to reinforce segregation, but that race itself became a sort of elephant in the room. As one caption about the show put it, Though the cast is all Negro, each character is presented merely as an authentic member of society in early New York, with no racial references. To pretend that race does not matter might be utopic, but such thinking is merely wishful. The late 60s were a time of intense protest due to both the war in Vietnam and the country's own racial tensions at home. The all-black Hello Dolly falls squarely between the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. At such a moment of unrest, how do we contextualize this frothy piece of entertainment? Perhaps even in 1967, there was a feeling that the producers had eschewed a black-and-white cast in order to avoid dealing with the issue of having an actor of one race playing a character romantically pursuing a character played by an actor of a different race. It had only been a few months earlier, in June, when the Supreme Court, in the case of Loving v. Virginia, overturned anti-miscegenation laws with a unanimous decision. Unspoken or not, the era was pregnant with racial tensions and overtones that could not be ignored. Perhaps for that moment, an all-black production of Hello Dolly made the most sense for changing white's perceptions of blacks. The show is fangless, regardless of who inhabits the roles, and in contrast to the outspoken black activists of the time period, the Pearl Bailey Hello Dolly provided an image of black America in which blacks were just like whites, because in the logic of this production, they essentially were white. With the lines, songs, costumes, and staging unchanged, race really did become nothing more than skin color, since all historical context was removed from the picture. It was, perhaps, an inverted minstrel show with blacks now playing the part of whites. So I don't know if I agree with all of that analysis, but mm-hmm. it really is like a lot more interesting than I initially thought it was like in this period now where we kind of really take like colorblind casting, mm-hmm. um, especially in revivals and in classic shows like this for granted. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that on this topic that I think is often not really considered. Um, and it, I think it came out later in her life anyway, but Carol Channing was a quarter black yeah. And I think she kind of came public with it with the publication of her autobiography. But in 2002, she went on Larry King and like described her reaction to learning her father was half black. When I found out, I was 16 years old and my mother told me. And you know, only the reaction on me was, gee, I got the greatest genes in show business. <laughs> and every time I start to sing or dance, I know it and I'm proud of it. She revealed in another interview that her mother told her about her father's heritage because she didn't want her to be surprised if she had a black baby. Um, Whoa. (laughs) I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it it happens. Yeah, and she kind of didn't really talk about it for obvious reasons of her not wanting to get passed up for casting things, um, which is like a sad reality of the world she was living in. You know, I think that with that being said, she really did in probably more ways than uh, other Broadway stars, you know, champion civil rights. Yeah. <laughs> or like was an out, outspoken advocate for civil rights. Yeah. You know, you'd never really expect Hello, Dolly, of all things, to be the way to kind of enter into a discussion of civil rights in the 60s. But like it really, it, it kind of is. Yeah. Well, it was also interesting, too, because you mentioned the Russia thing, but it was also scheduled to, um, you know, go to South Africa. And, there, you know, a lot of playwrights at the time were not letting their um, plays be performed there. Um, because of segregated theaters. But I think what Hello Dolly ended up doing was donating a large portion of the profits from that production to like a black theater troupe. Oh, good. Yeah, but this is like an amazing show. I think for me, thinking of like classic shows that I love, this is like my experience with the show is actually kind of funny because I 
when I was in high school, bought like a. I want really wanted the Vita cast recording on vinyl, but I had to like it came like packaged with like three or four other records, and Hello Dolly was one of the records, and I just learned to love it. That's beautiful. Yeah, I didn't really know anything about it until I thought it was until I saw the revival. I realized I actually a couple of years before had seen it at the Goodspeed in Connecticut and was kind of like whatever about it, but seeing the last Broadway production was an excellent revival and. You and I, we saw it together. We together saw it tw- twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a delight. What do you What do you think they should have performed? Hmm, I think that that's kind of hard. I wouldn't want to see the Hello Dolly number performed at the time. You know, I would want to see it, but I just don't <laughs> think it's right. Um, and so many of my favorite parts of the show are like such small, like understated moments. Like I love the part in Put On Your Sunday Clothes where she was like, Irma Guard, stop sniveling. Don't cry on the valises. <laughs> And I also like love the end of Hello Dolly where she's like, wow, 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 fellas. But I guess I would, with all that being said, um, I would probably pick Before the Parade Passes By. That was also my pick. Look at that crowd up ahead. Listen and hear that brass harmony growing. Look at that crowd up ahead. Pardon me if my old spirit is showing. All of those lights over there seem to be telling me where I'm going. When the whistle blows and the cymbals crash and the sparklers light the sky. I'm gonna raise the roof, I'm gonna carry on Give me an old trombone, give me an old baton Before the parade passes by So I mean, I was always sort of in an abstract way like Oh, Hello Dolly and Funny Girl are kind of like similar quality But like Obviously, Hello, Dolly is much better than Funny Girl. Mm -hmm. Like, Funny Girl, I think, holds this elevated status in people's minds because, you know, of an amazing Barbara Streisand performance and an amazing score, but it seems like it doesn't really hold up on a book level, and it was kind of sewn together Mm -hmm. by the skin of everyone's teeth. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that Funny Girl, when the movie came out, I think the movie was such a hit. It was, I think, the highest grossing film of 1968, and I think that it really just cemented things. At I guess what would be the height of Barbara mania. Uh, <laughs> you know, in thinking about um, Julie Stein's other show that we recently talked about, Bells Are Ringing, it, it does feel the same kind of thing. That's like, if you don't have the right star, you don't really have the right show. So Funny Girl um, opened at the Winter Garden Theater on March 26th, 1964. It closed July 1st, 1967 and had moved theaters. Opened at the Winter Garden, went to the Majestic, and then closed at the Broadway Theater. But a total of 1,348 performances. That's a a very healthy run. Yeah, no, it's a very healthy run. And uh, the creative team was, the producer was Ray Stark who is Bryce's son-in-law. The book was by Isabel Lennart and music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Bob Merrill. It's controversial who the yeah. director was, but... <laughs> we, um, can, we can dig into that. But uh, in the playbill, um, Garrison Kanan was billed as the director where Jerome Robbins, who arguably actually directed a lot of it, um, was the production supervisor. And Carol Haney, who... Um, 
died not that long after the opening of the show who you know is remembered as like a talented performer from the pajama game did the musical staging um and it was based on an original story my man by isabel leonard it was like a screenplay that she had a biopic screenplay that she had written funny girl is based on incidents in the life of the zigfield folly star fanny bryce shortly before during and after world war one and chronicles her rise from being an awkward, unattractive, sage-struck teenager to national stardom. It also covers the story of her love for and subsequent failed marriage to Nick Arnstein, an elegant, sophisticated man whose charm Fanny finds irresistible. So this started as another David Merrick production, but he quickly dropped out. So he, you know, typical to form, he wanted to get the Gypsy team back together, and he asked Julie Stein and Sondheim to do it. And it was originally going to be a vehicle for Mary Martin. And Sondheim was like, you've got to have a Jewish girl. And if she's not Jewish, she at least has to have a nose, (laughs) which I think Mm -hmm. uh, is very perceptive of him. So Julie Stein stayed on and they recruited Bob Merrill, as we've already discussed, to do the lyrics. But it was actually interesting because Dorothy Fields was at one point brought on to do the lyrics, but everyone kind of like was worried that there were too many women (laughs) Yeah, they they were like... Julie Stein was like, these ladies are going to gang up on me. <laughs> um, Which is weird that he didn't have that concern with Bells Are Ringing. I Maybe because Adolph and Betty were kind of like, they, there was a man there to balance it out. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Martin had read Isabella Leonard's screenplay, and she was like, oh, this is great. I want to do it as a musical. I think that, you know, something that strikes me is that at this point, Mary Martin is probably 20 years older than, you know, Barbara Streisand. Yeah. I, some people have said that she was even too young to play this role, but I guess that's like a reoccurring. Uh, problem of hers. Well, other people who were considered, they offered it to Carol Burnett, but she also said, I'm not Jewish, but she would have been great. Yeah. Um, and Anne Bancroft came pretty close to playing it, but I think Julie Stein and Bob Merrill both didn't want her to do it. They both really wanted Barbara Streisand, so they purposely wrote songs that were like way out of her range. Mm-hmm. And Anne Bancroft was like, good luck finding anyone who can sing this. <laughs> it's like, enter Barbara, stage right. Yeah, you know, the song People, which has become one of Barbara's mega hits, Bob Merrill's like, oh, I just need to write this song, but I know that (laughs) Anne's not going to like it. (laughs) And everyone tried to cut People. Every director, Jerome Robbins tried to cut it. Bob Fosse tried to cut it when he came in. Garson Kanan tried to cut it. And I have, it's funny, it reminds me of Harold Prince wanting to cut Hello, Dolly. Neither of Funny Girl's first two in a parade of directors, Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse, liked people when they first heard it, though the song was Stein and Merrill's favorite in the show. The musical's eventual director, Garson Kanan, tried to dump it, saying it didn't fit in the script. Merrill was aghast. I could not believe what was happening to us. The best song in the show was in danger. Stein's biographer writes that the usually confident composer momentarily wondered about the song, ready to write a replacement tune. Stein, a melody machine, wrote 56 pieces of music for the show. The composer related, now we're hearing for the third time that the song doesn't fit. So I look over at Bob Merrill and said, maybe people just didn't belong in Funny Girl. The show was the thing. We could write something else and shove people into the trunk. But then Stein dug in his heels. After he played people for Fosse, who was then the director, Fosse told the composer, Well, Jewel, it's a very beautiful song, no doubt about it, but I'm afraid we can't use it. Stein, what do you mean we can't use it? Fosse, it just doesn't make any dramatic sense for Fanny to sing this song. Stein, why the hell not? Fosse, listen to the words. Fanny Bryce isn't a person who needs people. She's a great star in the Follies, and she's surrounded by people. People on stage and people backstage. Then she has a family. She has a mother, and she has neighbors. She has all kinds of people at home. She doesn't need people anywhere, Jewel. That's why the song doesn't make any dramatic sense. And that's why there's no point in her singing this song. Stein replied in a quiet, measured voice. 
Listen, kid, I'll tell you what the point of singing this song is. Would you like to know what the reason is for Barbara Streisand to sing people? Fosse replied, yeah, what is the reason? Stein, the reason she's singing the song is because the song is going to be number one in the hit parade. That's why she's singing this fucking song. Fosse had to laugh, and he backed down, either out of fear of the combative composer or unable to counter Stein's logic. Okay, Jewel, now I understand. A feeling deep in your soul Says you are half, now you're whole No more hunger and thirst But first be a person who needs people even Frank Sinatra is like, I hate that damn song, People. <laughs> and then the day that it was like became number one, uh, he and Julie Stein were like at a party together. And he was like, because like apparently he had said it in like a magazine interview and Julie Stein had like gotten the magazine out and been like, so what do you think of People now, Frank? <laughs> so Barbara came, she had already been a breakout star in 1962. She was in a show called I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And she had, she was a a very small character that had one song that was really a scene stealer called Miss Marmalstein. Mm -hmm. That was the name of the song and the character. But no, no, it's always Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. You think at least Miss M they could try. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Miss Marmalstein. Oh, I could die. Even this profile of Barbara on the like eve of the show opening, they like call her Miss Marmalstein. Like, Miss Marmalstein came back to Broadway the other night, disguised as Fanny Bryce. There was nothing frumpy about her appearance this time in a black sequin dress that clung to her thighs like a patch of lichen. She threw her head back, sang her heart out, and knocked New York on its ear. The British critic Hugh Leonard wrote a very famous profile of her. People described her in such a rude way. It's like, Barbara is beautiful. Everybody needs to just chill out. But he wrote, The Nefertiti nose lends her the appearance of a disdainful eaglet. The face is that of an urchin, the nose too big for it, and emphasizes the fact that her eyes are hellbent on joining forces in a cyclopean manner. She is, in a word, plain, and therefore a source of comfort to every unbobbed nose in sight. Beauty is, after all, in the eyes of the ticket holder. Ouch. But Jerome Robbins, they found her. Um, Julie Stein read a rave review of her at the Bone Soir in Greenwich Village, um, and he went to see her several times, and Jerome Robbins also went to see her, and he wrote in a letter, The kook's looks are ravishing. Her beauty astounds. Composed of impossibly unconventional features, her body is full of gawky angles and sensuous curves. He raved about her El Greco hands and called her sexy. He wrote, Her performances astound, arouse, fulfill. When she sings, she is as honest and frighteningly direct with her feelings as if she was or will be in bed with you. Fanny Bryce's daughter did not like her and neither did David Merrick, but they were overruled, obviously. Yeah, and neither did the director. They, like, really clashed. Like, Hello, Dolly definitely had its problems out of town, but it seems like this was, like, a famously tortured process to write this show. It seems like everybody really hated each other. And as a side note, um, Garson Kanan, who they brought in, Actually, I have the Ethan Morden book has sort of a good summary of what was going wrong mm -hmm. with the whole thing. Barbara Streisand was going to be blamed for Funny Girl, and she knew it. The Boston trial was a disaster. At least her singing was going over well, and she could hardly be called miscast. But she was not yet 22 and relatively inexperienced. Her featured role in I Can Get It For You Wholesale, less a character than a series of vocals with one personality number, had not prepared her to play Fanny Bryce. 
As written by Isabel Leonard and revised by an unbilled John Patrick, the character is moody and unpredictable, as likely to resent what she needs as to chase after it. A good director could help her center the scenes, build the character, but the original director, Jerome Robbins, backed out at around the time that co-producer David Merrick did, leaving Merrick's ex-partner, Ray Stark, with Bob Fosse. Well, that would work. Only Fosse walked when Stark, a Broadway tyro, questioned his ability. Stark ended up with Garson Kanan, who couldn't have been wronger. Stein and Merrill wrote an astonishing number of songs for Funny Girl. Not because, like Schmidt and Jones in 110 in the Shade, they wanted to explore the material, but because at that point in Funny Girl's history, nobody knew what the show was. To Frances Stark, it was an adoring memorial to her mother. To Stein and Merrill, it was a backstager with a sad romance tucked in. To costume designer Irene Sheriff, it was another of those period things with the big hats and the demented shoes. To choreographer Carol Haney, it was an extra heavy job, because given Kanan's lack of experience, she would have to stage much of the show herself. To Streisand, it was a ticket to Hollywood. And to Isabel Leonard, it was two very different shows married to each other, like that jumble of comedy and tragedy they had put on in Richard Strauss's opera Ariadne F. Naxos. Funny Girl has two through lines. Or even, Funny Girl comprises two genres. One is a yes-I-will backstager, which unfortunately peters out near the end of Act 1. The other is the romance, which keeps getting bogged down in the marital soap opera that takes up all of Act 2. Loosely binding the two is the subtextual matter applied in the show's title. The heroine feels that when she isn't joking around, men will think her funny looking. I think that sums up a lot of the problems with it. And as an interesting side note, number one, Garson Kanan was married to Ruth Gordon. And he also wrote a novel, you know, a thinly fictionalized version of his experiences stepping into direct the show called Smash, which was then adapted uh-huh. to, uh, loosely adapted to the infamous TV show. And this was, I think, the only musical book that Isabel Leonard ever wrote. And she wrote an opinion article titled... Funny Girl, the most horrible experience of my life. (laughs) Um, And um, in it, she was like, The morning after Funny Girl opened on Broadway, I left New York and came back to nice, quiet, sensible Hollywood, where I have lived and worked most of my adult life. Well, left isn't quite the right word. I fled screaming. Well, screaming isn't quite the right word either. After a couple of months in rehearsal with Funny Girl and another three or four months on the road with it, I didn't have enough strength to scream. I moaned. That's what I did. And that's what I kept doing for almost two years. It was the most horrible experience of my life. I told anyone who would listen. Writing the libretto for a musical, this was my first, is the best way to lose your sanity, your judgment, and your teeth. I lost one, so I should know. <laughs> oh my god. That's amazing. So Barbara hated everyone except Sidney Chaplin, who we know from Bells Are Ringing, and she ended up having an affair with him, even though she was dating Elliot Gould at the time. Sidney Chaplin was really catnip for the ladies. So good for him. He's got... Serious game. Yeah, he has this, you know, I think in, in when we talked about bells are ringing, it's like he has like swarthy good looks <laughs> <laughs> like his father. One morning, Milton Rosenstock went to the Winter Garden and there was Streisand alone on the stage. With rehearsal scheduled for 11, Milton always arrived a half hour early and usually had the theater to himself for 15 or 20 minutes. Barbara was sitting on a high stool in the glow of the work light. She looked almost like a statue, motionless. Good morning, Milton said. She answered, barely audible, good morning. You all right? Yes. What are you doing? I'm waiting. Okay, said Rosenstock, shuffling music. He felt a dread as if a dynamite fuse had been lighted in the theater. The cast began to wonder Anne, and she still sat there in the glow of the light, as if to say, damn it, you didn't expect me today, did you? (laughs) Defiance was all over her face. 
And, like, apparently from there, they, like, kind of started doing a run-through of Act 1, and, like, instead of doing... She basically did the opposite of, like, all of her blocking and staging in the scenes that she was supposed to be still. She would just, like, get up and do, like, senseless movement, and then, like, eventually someone's like, are you okay? And she's like, no! And, like, (laughs) kind of was being a diva. Well, they also said that later on in the run, she often walked through her part, experimented, fiddled, and mocked. So (laughs) it's interesting that the reviews of the production were kind of middling on the show itself, but they were all big raves for her. But it's like when you show up to the show, she might be doing something totally weird. And Ethan Morton said she never did a musical again after that. And, And it's kind of sad because it's like, you know, obviously she had a very successful recording career, but her, you know, record as in movies is very so 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 it's kind of interesting to think about a parallel timeline where she stayed on Broadway and like they were writing her a new show every like two years. And although obviously she did not like she didn't like doing it, but Mm -hmm. and it's crazy that she is really remembered as uh, an iconic Broadway star, even though she only ever did this one show. Yeah. Or I mean, she did, you know, she only starred in this one show. I mean, like compared to someone like Carol Channing, it is kind of even. Yeah, she's like kind of has this reputation. Um, And I also think it were and you mentioned this when we were talking about Hello, Dolly. It's like this is like kind of the last moment that like popular music and like show tunes have like a pretty crossover cross big crossover and also um julie stein named his son nick after nick arnstein (laughs) oh really yeah yeah he during like this whole process it's actually interesting because um i think two things that kind of struck me um is that you know this is like while on a superficial level there's like similarities to gypsy it just feels really different but still has like is like a great score Um, But also, Julie Stein was, like, a really bad gambler um, and, like, was owing money to everyone. So it's, like, there's this weird parallel between him and Nick. And also, at the time of the show, he, like, married a woman who was, like, 30 years younger than him. And everyone's, like, well, I hope she's not marrying him for money because (laughs) he has none. Uh, Um, I think even, like, the IRS put, like, a lien on his ASCAP royalties for people because, like, he owed so much money. Wow, that's um, crazy. And like random people knew that he was a gambler that kind of owed everyone money. So like people, like strangers would just kind of show up to his house and be like, I'm going to break both of your arms if you don't pay up. <gasps> um, and they would just be like people who he didn't actually even owe money. They were just like mob guys that like knew that like they might be able to scare him. Oh my God. Yeah, I guess going back to the Tonys, Carol Channing in her memoir that she has written didn't necessarily think that she was going to win. And they were good friends until Barbara took the role in the movie. Yeah, Barbara really got the last laugh there. Or did she? Barbara, like, asked, they, like, were hanging out and asked Carol if she had ever seen Fanny Bryce perform, and Carol's like, yeah, of course. So she, like, asked her a lot of questions. So here's, like, a description of the Barbara-Carol dynamic from this season. Barbara was eager to hear more, but I saw Funny Girl and realized that the title was meant to be ironic. It's essentially about the unfunny side of Fanny's life and was, as we all know, and as Barbara created it, great. Vocally, sometimes read-like and delicate, altogether a work of art. Irene Sheriff's costumes on her were works of art. Barbara was even greater in the movie, which was another work of art. So much for art. As I told you before, the year 1964 was the birth on Broadway of Funny Girl Hello Dolly and Noel Coward's High Spirits, starring B. Lilly. At Sardi's restaurant, everyone seemed to be talking about who was going to win Best Musical Star, Barbara, B, or me. B said to me, I think you're going to win it, Carol. Me. 
No, I'm not. You're going to. I lost it on my first starring part in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes to a lady named Patricia Neway, who learned her opera singing well, but pioneered no new trails herself. I've learned to lose the Tony. B. It might be Barbara. Yes, it might. But I don't know, and on it went. So I guess everyone... Oh, and here we go. Are you still curious about who won the Tony? Or have you finally lost interest because I can't seem to come to my point? Well, I won it, which prompted Barbara, according to Harvey Sabinson, our publicist, to get up and walk out saying, they're all anti-Semitic. Only she said, Semitic. And I wanted to shout, it's Semitic, anti-Semitic, not Semitic. You're not a Semite, you're a Semite. But I didn't. Dear, if you take all the Semites out of show business, there'll be very little left, including the Tony Awards Committee. But we all know Barbara is perhaps our greatest creative force musically. Jerry Herman tells me she plans to do MAME next for TV, that fabulous comedy that will be as hilarious as her dolly. Of course, we're all very happy to settle for her great artistry. A barrel of laughs she ain't. Whoa. Wow. And then she goes on to say that, like, you never, you never should steal someone's baby, and Hello Dolly was Carol's baby. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true, and uh, the movie flopped. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think we've sort of danced around this, but like, I think, um, you know, ultimately the show ended up being as much about Barbara as it did about Fanny, mm-hmm. just in terms of her persona. And I think that something to know is that like they didn't use any Fanny Bryce songs in the musical. And Julie Stein, like, wrote, like, songs that suggested the songs that Fanny was famous for. But then in the movie, they actually did incorporate some of... Yes. And uh, Funny Girl has never been revived, which I think, which, again, you know, the shadow of Barbara looms so large. And I know a lot of people think that that's what Lady Gaga should do if she comes to Broadway. But, I mean, I know she does have the nose, but she's not Jewish. I think she should do MAME if she's going to do a a 60s revival. That's actually a really fun, hot take. I think she would be an absolute delight in that. I think someone, I think if they're going to do Funny Girl, they should discover, like, another young woman. Um, Yeah, there was, like, a plan for a 2011 revival um, with... Lauren Ambrose. Lauren Ambrose, who I also don't think would be right. No. Um, I know, you can't get any farther from Jewish than Lauren Ambrose. (laughs) You know, redheaded Irish girl. Yeah, but they were kind of just worried because that was when the Porgy and Bess and Avita revivals were up, and they were just kind of scared that they wouldn't be able to sell tickets, and uh, the producers kind of backed out. I think that's probably for the best. Yeah. Well, I guess around that time, too, was when it was on, they featured it on Glee. It's so funny how Funny Girl has really had a second wind because of Glee. Well, yeah, I think that, like, you know, someone who I know who, like, likes musicals, but, like, doesn't have that deep of a knowledge is, like, a huge Funny Girl stan. And I'm like, it's kind of a deep cut. And it's like, I get it, because I feel like a lot of people, especially a lot of Jews, like, it's kind of like a movie that you can like show your kids because it's like you know yeah it's a piece of jewish pop culture for sure but you know i think that i learned that she um ended up learning about it through glee um and also i just want to say since barbara is by far the best part of the show most of the score is constructed around her it is very very rude that on spotify they and i'm sure it's because of like something with her 
you know, contracts, like whatever contract with her record label. But if you go on Spotify, you can only play the songs on the Funny Girl cast recording without her. So it's like you can listen to the overture. You can listen to all of Kay Medford's songs. And, uh, and then you're done. Like you might as well just make the whole thing not available. Yeah, yeah. It's although, very weird. Although the overture is excellent. And I listened to it a bunch of times when I realized that was the situation. Um, I think that going back to having a troubled out of town, it was like given five different opening dates and like it was kind of like this big running joke that it's like when is funny girl actually going to open and also so people was not only a huge hit but um they released it before the show even opened so that the opening night it got applause in the overture when people heard it oh wow yeah yeah so what do you think uh they should have performed um don't rain on my parade but whether i'm the rose of sheer perfection or freckle on the nose of life's complexion the cinder or the shiny apple of its eye i gotta fly once i gotta try once only can die once bright so I'm a comer. I simply gotta march my heart's a drummer. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. My vote would be um, I'm the greatest star. Oh, yeah, that's actually. I'm I'm a I'm the greatest star super fan because mm-hmm. I think it's like you get a good taste of Barbara, but it, you're not really blowing your load the way you are with the Don't Rain on My Parade. But you mm-hmm. get a little bit a little taste of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention is that an 18 year old Marvin Hamlish was like the uh, company or like the piano. Like, Aww, yeah cute. and like julie stein had to like ask his parents if he could like work for them that's so sweet i can make them cry i can make them sigh someday they'll clamor for my drama have you guessed yet who's the best yet Okay, so I guess uh, we are not going to talk about anything else this time because we <laughs> talked a lot. I liked doing this one. These are these both are such like a natural fit to talk about together. Mm-hmm. There's so many overlaps, not just because Barbara ended up doing them all and doing Carol Channing dirty. Yeah, but you know, to be fair, it's not like Carol Channing could have gone into Funny Girl. <laughs> she does not have the range. <laughs> No, I think Carol Channing is kind of like John Lithgow, where she has like one speed, <laughs> um, and it just so happens that her speed is is a, Dolly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so next time we're gonna talk about a bunch of different stuff. We're gonna talk about She Loves Me and High Spirits, which are the other two. We're probably gonna talk about Anyone Can Whistle, just because we love Sondheim. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about some plays. We're gonna talk about 
a few of the other musicals. We're just going to talk about whatever. You can email us um, at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Rate us five stars on iTunes. Yes. Um, and also reach out to us and tell us which iconic 1963-64 songs about, song about a parade you like best. Yes. Don't rain on my parade, a parade in town. And before the parade, before passes, the parade by. passes by, <laughs> you know, it's tough. Make it's, a case. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. See you next week. Bye. Bye.